Greetings, good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. My name is Jason. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, grateful to open up God's Word with you. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. And Acts is after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, the right side of your Bible. And that's where we will uh, be for most of the morning. Um, I'd ask a few of you to pray for me this morning. Um, I... I'm sensing just a bit of anxiety more than usual, and I'm not exactly sure where that's coming from. And so knowing my idols, it probably has something to do with pleasing you all or significance or control, something like that. So if just silently as we make our way, uh, if a couple of you would just ask for the Lord to be present and at peace, and, or that I would be at peace with his presence in my heart, uh, I would appreciate it. Uh, coincidentally, we'll be talking about the peace uh, of God today, so perhaps this is why my heart is racing a little bit. Um, we do want to talk about the presence of God, uh, but and before we do that, we have to talk about protection. We have to talk about the, our understanding of why we've even come to God in the first place, uh, because by and large, many of us chose to come to Jesus because of some benefit that we believed that Jesus would give to us, that Jesus ultimately would do something in us, through us, would shape us, and therefore because of that, we have to be so careful and always mindful about why it was that we came to Jesus in the first place, because often how we came to him in the first place is how we regularly come to him throughout the habit of our week and our month and the rhythm of our year. In, in other words, if we came to Jesus because because he seemed like the best option that was available. Well, through our life, if another option seems a little bit better than Jesus, we will begin to choose that and not him. If we came to Jesus because we trusted that he would bring us financial help, stability in our business, or a good relationship that we were longing for, then when one of those things is not going as we see fit, then we are likely to abandon Jesus. See, one of the great brokenness of the human heart, because Jeremiah tells us the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, is that even in our coming to Jesus, even in our perhaps belief in who he is and what he has done, we can even twist those things and make them about our comforts, our provision, and our own self-assurance. And so often the way that we do that is that when we're feeling like, ah, I just really want to feel protected, I'm going to go through the Bible and find places where God says that he's going to protect me, or I am not feeling at peace. I'm going to find all of these places in the Bible that tell me that I have peace. Here's the issue with that, because this is one of the ways that we come to Jesus, which I think our text really helps us with today, is that it turns Christianity, it turns faith in Jesus, following Jesus, into a host of commodities, into a host of products, and that whenever we are depleted in a particular product, then we will go back to the source of that product, and we will say, I'm running a little bit low on peace today. Could you give me a supersized version of that? Thank you. Today I'm a little bit anxious. Could you give me a little bit of protection as it relates to my stock options? I'm a little bit nervous about those. Or I'm having trouble being patient with my spouse. I'm going to go to God. He will give me patience. We can treat God as if he has a host of products that we from time to time need and fail to recognize that he is a master and Lord who dictates, predicates, and rules and reigns over every little square inch of your being. It's a complete difference. And so what our text will help us to do today, I trust, when we come to Acts 15, or Acts 18, rather, is will help us to understand a reorientation or perhaps the very first time about how we come to Jesus. Because you see, anything else is religion. 
Religion is believing that if we do enough good, we will put God on the moral hook and he will owe us eternity with him. God does never and will never owe you a thing. And so it is this graciousness that peace in particular is not a commodity, it is a person. Jesus offers us himself as our peace. And this is what Acts 18 helps us to understand today. And the Lord knows I need to believe it today. So hear these words from Acts 18 verses 1 through 17. These will be the very words of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Uh, Crippus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo, uh, Gallio, rather, uh, said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sothenus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio paid no attention to any of this. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do come to you now, not because we haven't already been in your presence, but now as we come directly to your word, Uh, We ask for your help. We thank you that our worship continues as we come to your word, as we have prayed in accordance with what we know to be true about you from the scriptures, as we have sung words, uh, truths about who you are revealed to us in your word. Now we come to your word and ask that you would continue to instruct our hearts, continue to convict us, continue to reveal in us places of disbelief and wrong affections, Uh, reveal to us even habits this past week that were revealing idols as we've been exploring that in Acts. And so I ask for your help in this. I I ask for your great peace in my own heart that it would not be out of my own skill or my own merit that I proclaim because that is only as powerful as one moment to the next. But your word, when you speak, when you move, when you breathe life into your church, that is enduring and eternal. 
And so we ask, Father, ask for my brothers and sisters today, would you equip them? Would you sharpen their minds and write thinking from your word and about you? Would you soften their hearts to be malleable to your sovereign will and to your spirit? And would you help us as a church to not simply have spiritualities of individuality, but that we would be a people who are working to see your good, pleasing, and perfect will heaven coming to earth? Not because we can bring it down, but because that's what you're doing, and we just want to join you in the work of you renewing all things. And so help us, help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word, and help all of us today, Father, to be submissive to it, to be joyful in our obedience of it, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, our passage today has four different scenes, and we're going to move through all four of them. First, Paul will meet uh, two new ministry partners. Uh, Then he'll turn away from the Gentiles or toward the Gentiles, away from the Jews, after which he's going to have a vision from the Lord. And then Paul will find himself, as he has before, before this governing authority, before this governing body uh, being tried. Now, all of this seems a bit like familiar territory. After all, Paul has had many missionary alliances, many uh, ministry friends, Paul, or rather Timothy, Silas, Barnabas, uh, to name a few. Paul has already witnessed to Gentiles regularly. He has gone to the synagogue, and when perhaps he didn't have a hearing there, he went to non-Jews outside of the synagogue. Uh, He's already been before many different councils and governmental powers. He's received visions directly from Jesus, particularly on the road to Damascus. And so the question often for us is, so what's new about this? If Paul has been through this before, couldn't we have just skipped this particular passage and moved on and said that we have already covered that? Well, at some level, there is nothing new about this because Scripture doesn't work that way. And it's really good news that Scripture doesn't work that way. God, in his kindness, doesn't just cover a single subject or idea and then move on and go, there, I said it, you better get it, and if you don't, that's on you because I told you already, right? Like maybe I am with my children. I told you once, I need obedience, days of creation. Dad said it was so, and it was good. That's what I want in my house. Thanks be to God, our God is more gracious than that, more gracious than me. See, he is a God who graciously repeats himself. He is a God who graciously repeats himself all the times and uh, time, and this is a gift. He doesn't just give you a single chance to hear, to listen, and obey. Throughout the scriptures, we hear him repeating himself, rearticulating, not because he said anything wrongly or because he stuttered or because you deserved another chance. All of it is because he's gracious. All of it is because he is good. And so here we see over and again Paul going through perhaps very similar steps, similar things, similar stories, and this is God yet again inviting us to hear and to see his will. And so we must be careful to not merely look for the new and the fresh, something that's different from last week, right? And the reason this is so instructive for us is because what were the Athenians in our previous passage so enamored by? Something new, something different, something fresh. They loved the things that were new. They loved hearing new things. And so we must be careful to not simply long for something new and different that we haven't heard before, but tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. At some level, though, there is something distinct about this well-worn path. See, in particular, Paul steps into Corinth 
And at this particular time, the Roman Empire had just forcibly removed Jews from, from Rome. Not only so, but they were, they were in the middle of this deeply trying and threatening time. And Paul is threatened to leave the city again, but he doesn't. They, they kick him out of the synagogue, and we would think then the next step would be to leave the city. But in fact, what he does is go right next door. He remains in that city for a year and a half. Here's the first scene, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, uh, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked uh, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is the first scene. Here's where Paul meets these two new missionary partners, Priscilla and Aquila. And it's important to put it just so, Priscilla, then Aquila, because there's six different references to this couple in the New Testament. And four out of those six times, Priscilla is listed first. This was likely because of her particular ability and personal character and impact of the local church. See, this was something that was going on. This couple was deeply formative, not only now in this church here in Corinth where Paul is meeting them previous to planting this church, but as we read the whole of the New Testament, we see that Priscilla and Aquila were instrumental in planting churches in Rome and in Ephesus. And so Paul mentions them by name at the end of his letter to the Romans in Romans 16.3 and also his letter to Timothy because of their work in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 4.19. So it's best that we understand Priscilla and Aquila as we're introduced to them. These are deeply formative people. These are deeply committed and faithful people. They become church planters that welcome people into their home and use their home as the place where church begins to get launched and planted in new and difficult cities. Luke records that Priscilla and Aquila left Rome because of Claudius's edict, his expulsion of Jews. Now, the exact date and reason for why Claudius does this is unclear, but because of Roman historians, we have a little bit of an idea it had something to do with Jesus. It had something to do with the message and the mission of Jesus right about 50 AD. In particular, Jews were divided in Rome. Some were faithful uh, Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet they continued to proselytize or to share and try to convert Gentiles into Judaism. And then you had new Jewish Christians who believed and trusted in Jesus and the Messiah and were beginning to speak about Jesus and wanting people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to come to Jesus. Well, this kind of division was causing a kind of stir because Jesus always upsets governmental power. Jesus always disrupts political powers and any particular day. And so Julius Caesar, or rather this guy Claudius, is really upset. And so until he can figure out what's going on, he just tells them all to get out. He's like, I'm going to try to figure this out so all Jews leave until I can make heads or tails of this. Well, there's a rebirth of Corinth that happens a number of years later, about 44 B.C., 
About 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebounds the city, if you will. And, and therefore, this, this takes place and this new birth begins to happen before Paul gets there. This new epicenter of culture and of religion. The Corinthian, actually the, the city of Corinth, will one day swell to three quarters of a million people in the first century. So there is this newness of life. There is this history and now this newness of expulsion out of Rome into Corinth. All of this is taking place. And here here is where Paul steps in with Jews who love their Jewish faith and Jews now who love Jesus and this sort of Corinthian melee of culture. He speaks into this, the gospel of Jesus. That's a lot. That's a lot of culture to deal with. So it's no surprise that the first thing God gives Paul is friends, is friends. Priscilla and Aquila, who are already there, Paul meets them because his friendship with them actually was already sovereignly or they had the same job. Did you notice that? They had something already in common besides Jesus. Notice verse 3. Paul was a tent maker like Priscilla and Aquila. You see, Paul taught the importance of making sure to take care of the financial needs of vocational elders and ministry leaders within the local church. But this was a right that he never availed himself to because he didn't want it to be a stumbling block to the weak, nor did he want to have a hint of covetousness of anyone in the local church. So he teaches to take care financially of vocational elders and ministry leaders, and yet he did not avail himself of this as his ministry was taking off. And so what he did was he took on another job, another task, a bivocational role of making tents so that he would not be a burden to local congregation. And to this day, Bivocational ministry leaders are called often tent makers because of this particular way in which Paul pioneered this methodology. So it's not surprising now that in the midst of the tension in Corinth, Paul is preaching, he gets friends, and very quickly he gets into trouble. Very quickly he gets into trouble. I mean, that train's never late. You step into a progressive growing city like Corinth, you proclaim that Jesus is Lord, you just look at your watch, something's about to go down. It always happens. But what is also going to be taking place within this story, in the midst of that tension, that pain, those consequences, is there will be incredible gospel fruit that God sees fit to reap for his glory and the church's good. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is scene two. And we see this juxtaposition of gospel growth and incredible tension and reviling and persecution that Paul continues to endure. And what takes place is Silas and Timothy now catch up with Paul. Because if you remember, Paul went out ahead of them. And Paul seems now 
in this particular moment when Titus and Timothy come, he's able to actually lay down his tent making for exclusive gospel preaching. Though I think the ESV is less clear in this particular point, the English Standard Translation, the NIV puts it this way, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. What's the point? Well, something happens. Something happens when Silas and Timothy comes at, come, and it's not simply because there are more people to do more work. It's best to understand that Silas and Timothy have brought a financial gift from Macedonia to help support a church happening in another city. In fact, Paul would later write back, there, there are two letters to this Corinthian church that Paul is in the middle of planting. This is one of the great things about going through Acts, is we see the places and moments in history where these letters that we have in the New Testament are written back to these churches that God saw fit to plant through Paul, and one of those particular letters is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Hear, hear this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what Paul would later write about the Macedonian Christians in relationship with the Corinthian church. We want you to know, brothers, he says to the Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Hear this, the Macedonians didn't give because they were generous. Or rather, because, rather, they didn't give because they were wealthy, I should say. They gave because they were Christians. They gave because they believed and followed Jesus. They didn't give because they had an abundance. They gave because Jesus was their Lord. It actually was a cause of affliction. It was a cause of great burden to them. They took on a burden so that their brothers and sisters, or those who were about to be their brothers and sisters, did not have to be burdened by the financial implications of the new church plant happening in Corinth. Paul writes them back to make sure that they understand that. This is the heritage of your faith. What we really see happening in the Macedonian church is a, willing to take, a willingness to take on vulnerability and sacrifice, in this particular case financially, even in the midst of their own affliction for the sake of greater kingdom growth, expansion, mission, and good. They are willing to go shorthanded. They are willing to go with less. They are willing to lay down. They are willing to be exposed in order for the sake of their brothers and sisters to know Jesus. Oh, Lord, give me a faith like this. See, exposure is always the prerequisite to things like power and protection and purpose. Researcher, and I mean, you probably know her as vulnerability and shame extraordinaire, Brene Brown, speaks about this paradox of safety and protection in her book, Rising Strong. She writes this, I believe that vulnerability, the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of outcome, is the only pathway to more love, belonging, and joy. We often operate out of a scarcity idea, 
that I need to hold on to things in order to become, in order to grow in stability. I can't give away. I must hold on to. See, but if we desire protection, we must first be exposed. If we desire strength, we must first admit and disclose our weakness. If we desire true safety and fruitfulness, we must first be vulnerable. This is not just a buzzword. I know a lot of people are talking about vulnerability. Jesus was displaying vulnerability long before it was popular to talk about it. Jesus is the one who instituted that this gospel logic would begin to preside within his people. And so the Macedonian church is willing to take on financial vulnerability so that a new church in Corinth would know strength and stability. The more Paul preached, though, in Corinth, the more opposition came. Did you see in verse 6? There's reviling, there's opposition coming from the Jewish synagogue. And when he's faced with this hostility, like anywhere else, like he has everywhere else, rather, he quotes Ezekiel 33, 4. Now, you know you have made somebody angry when they quote Ezekiel, right? When they go back to the deep cuts of the OT prophets, and he says, your blood be on your heads, I am innocent, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. I'd like to suggest to you that if you are sharing your faith and somebody is less than receptive, this may not be the best next step to proclaim this kind of thing over them. But because Paul's words actually serve as a dual purpose. First, he's clear about his personal absolution of guilt from their rejection of the gospel. This is actually quite healthy, right? He's saying, this is, this is not on me right? Listen, I've got enough sin and guilt to deal with that I have created by my own sin and my own heart. I cannot take yours on as well. This is a rejection of the gospel of which Paul is saying, I've been faithful. Secondly, though, it's a reorientation in Corinth away from teaching in the synagogues to the Jews to now preaching to the Gentiles. However, though this may be familiar, this is about the time in other cities where Paul leaves the city because he has this, this oppression, he has this persecution, they have this denial of the gospel. But instead of that, what does Paul do? He goes next door. This is really hardcore ministry. You have just kicked me out of the synagogue. I'm not going to leave. I'm going next door. I'm going to be right here. He goes to the house of Titus Justice, who loves Jesus and who lives right next door to the synagogue. This close proximity results, this is amazing, not only in the salvation of the ruler of that synagogue, but his entire family. This has been a theme in Acts, hasn't it? It's like the Holy Spirit is not done with a single person in a single household. He saves everybody in that household. He brings all of them to an understanding of their sin and the lordship of Jesus. But now, can you imagine the challenge and the tension for this family? Like, this is their, their livelihood. This is their vocation, the ruler of the synagogue. The tension that that family is feeling. The tension now that Titus Justice is feeling right next door to the people that reviled, opposed, and persecuted Paul. I mean, that's just like a little bit of a hesitation to welcome that Airbnb guest, right? Who's after you? My next door neighbors? I'm not sure I want that kind of noise happening right here and right now. It's not going to lead to five stars, right? It's just not going to work well for me. Yet he does it anyway. Because what we see each of these people willing to do is exposure, vulnerability for the sake of not only deep and rich community, but understanding what the reality of Jesus' lordship calls them into. How costly and challenging this must have been, especially in such a volatile culture, not only from the Jews, but the entire melee of Corinthian culture. It's important to notice this mounting tension. 
and to see this over and over again because this is the context in which the Lord sees fit to plant churches. You would expect this is the place where like the church begins to die out, it's irrelevant, there's too much opposition, there's too much heavy. No, that's not what happens. The discomfort and cost is heightened in a progressive and pagan city where we would believe that often that would begin to fall apart, but where what actually begins to happen is more fruit. This is deeply hopeful for us eight months into a new church in the northwest side of the city. Can I get an amen? This is deeply encouraging for us. I wonder if you see our church within the story of the church here in Corinth. Therefore, we too ought not be surprised when pressure rises. When difficulty and tension begins to show up, when we face the same kind of opposition that Paul faces, that Timothy and Silas face, that Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila not only help start that, they're like, that wasn't that bad, let's go to Rome. That wasn't that bad, let's go to Ephesus. They begin to do this kind of work everywhere. Send us to the hard cities. Let's go. See, this should be incredibly encouraging for us in Chicago, particularly in Logan Square, in a gentrifying, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, in a place where they would say the church in that kind of diversity, in that kind of place, cannot find relevancy with the wholeness of that community. Therefore, it will probably fall apart or become mono-ethnic. We do not believe that is true because the gospel is more powerful than our vision of what is easy. Later, in reflection of this situation, Paul writes again to the Corinthians this about his struggle. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, thank you God, but in the power of God. He came in weakness, he came in fear, he came in trembling, but he showed up. See, many of us have this vision of Paul, myself included, like this dude was crazy, like passionate, zealous, just would show up and storm hell with a water pistol, right? Just like bold and brash. Like we might look at Paul and believe that he is somehow superhuman, this sort of superhero apostle. And so if we're not a careful, we have this high and lofty view of this missionary Paul. And so this was what begins to go on in our minds. This is probably what's been going on the entire teaching series through Acts in our hearts and minds. Well, that's Paul, and he was crazy passionate and committed, and I'm just a normal Christian. So that's the kind of work that super apostles do. I'm just going to find my nice little Jesus niche where he gives me peace, where he gives me safety and security, and I'll let Paul do his thing. I'll let the Pauls do their thing. I'd like to suggest to you that Paul's zeal is normative Christian joy. Paul's zeal is normative Christian joy. The aberration is our ineptitude. The aberration is our passivity. The aberration is our lack of trusting that God will be true to supply all of our needs in the face of reviling and opposition. See, he was fearful. 
He was weak. See, we believe there's some people who don't feel fear. There's some people who aren't weak. Sure, we all have weaknesses, but some people just aren't weak. Paul literally wrote the words, in my weakness, he is strong. See, Paul is not powerful because he is unfamiliar with his weakness. He finds strength because he admits all of his weaknesses, because he exposes all of them. He was fearful. He was weak. He flinched in the face of opposition. He pump faked in the paint, if you will. He hesitated when he realized the costliness of mission. Even in Paul, fear and uncertainty creep in during a time of weariness during a time, I am sure he's in the middle of the second missionary journey, just going, not again. I thought the second time around would be a little bit easier. In the midst of this tension and fruit, in the midst of this terror of physical safety and of peace and eternal security, desiring a longing for comfort. And isn't it true, all of us in the middle of a situation like this, or perhaps the situation that you're in, we just long for comfort. We long for help. We long for reassurance. And this is exactly what the Lord delivers to Paul. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the third scene. This is the third scene now. Feel the tension, the weightiness that Paul is in the middle of. Previously, where he may have ran out from a particular city, now he has a sense that he needs to stay, move next door. And yet he is still in the midst of threats. He's in the middle of tension, possible violence. This hasn't quieted. This hasn't slowed down. It's in a pluralistic society where they very much have an understanding that these monotheistic people, whether Jews or now these Jewish Christians or these Christians, believe in this resurrected Lord. And in that particular context, those who believe and trust in Jesus and his exclusivity are always forced to the margins, even though fruit and transformation persist. Are you feeling the weightiness that Paul must have felt? See, today is not unlike that day. Our situation, not unlike Paul's in Chicago, he in Corinth, and it's in the middle of this uncertainty. It's in the middle of that heaviness. It's in the middle of that weightiness that Jesus speaks. This is so important for us to keep in mind, church. Remember, Paul has just got done battling false gods in the Areopagus in Athens. We just got done reading how in Isaiah we we build idols that have ears but can't hear, noses but can't smell, mouths but can't speak, right? You remember this, you recall this, and it's in the middle of this uncertainty, just one passage later, where Jesus speaks to Paul directly. Why? Because our God speaks. Our God speaks. Our God speaks in the middle of certainty. He speaks in the middle of fear. He speaks in the middle of hardship. This is not just attested to in this particular passage. This has been historically attested to throughout scriptures. From the very beginning, our God has been a God who speaks. So what does he say? The first thing that he tells Paul is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus first, and perhaps this underlying directive, is to know his peace in the middle of the struggle and oppression. Secondly, what Jesus says to him is, do not be silent. 
In other words, isn't it true when stuff gets hard, we think I need to stop doing the thing that led to life being hard and then life will be easy. What Jesus says is don't be afraid and keep doing what got you into trouble. Ooh, that's the paradox of the kingdom if I've ever heard it. Do not be silent, he says. Paul is to continue to preach, continue to plant churches, continue to teach, to not grow weary in doing the good work of mission. And here's the foundation of it all right in the middle. Where's the assurance? Where's the hope for this? He says, because I'm with you. See, we have a God who doesn't just speak, but we have a God who is present. We have a God who is with us. Thirdly, Jesus reassures Paul with his presence. This is the powerful in idea that is informing the injunctions to not be afraid and to not be silent. The logic behind both, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Don't be silent because I'm with you. Keep preaching because I'm with you. Keep planting this church because I'm with you. Keep being faithful because I'm with you. Keep obeying because I'm with you. Keep confessing your sin one to another. Why? Because I'm with you. The product of that, he says, no one will attack you. No one's going to attack you. And you go, well, why? Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. Not going to come at me. Jesus promises Paul that he will be physically protected because he will be with him. And the reassurance that now will surround Paul physically is what? The church. Look at what he says. Many in this city are my people. Remember, Paul just got there. It's not like he's filling up churches with thousands of people every Sunday and the Lord's like, just make it back to church on Sunday. You'll see all those people. You'll be encouraged. He's talking about people who haven't been saved yet. He said, I've got a lot of people in this city. You don't know about them, but I do because I chose them before the foundation of the world, right? So keep preaching. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. No one will attack to harm you. And there are many in this city who are about to get saved and being the evidence of my presence with you. Do you know that the brother and sister sitting next to you is evidence of the presence of God? It's evidence of the fruitfulness of his work on the cross, his work and the resurrection, his work to bring all things together again and holding all things together again by the word of his power. A theme begins to develop here within this multi-layered encouragement of Jesus to Paul. Paul is being spoken to by Jesus. There is a confidence to not fear, to keep preaching, to know that he is safe, to know that there are others in the city, and all of this is grounded in the presence of Jesus. Hear this. God doesn't encourage Paul, perhaps the way that we would. He doesn't encourage Paul by saying, you've done this before, it's going to be okay. Right? Right? He doesn't like point to Paul's credentials and just go, you're Paul, you're amazing, you're incredible, you're a pretty snowflake, like nobody is like you. You are so individual, you are so different, you, you're a great guy, stick it out, hunker down, you'll be okay. There's no special appeal to Paul's character or his track record at all. The encouragement is solely grounded in the character of Jesus. Did you notice that? That's really exciting. Why? Because his character doesn't change. His character is faithful. If he says he is with us, he is with us. Godly encouragement is not nicety of self-assurance. It is the announcement of God's enduring character and nature despite circumstances. All of this 
is based on the presence of Jesus. We should recall that Jesus didn't all of a sudden look down at the mission of the church and said, I better go be with them. Right? This has always been his promise. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, he says this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This missionary mandate and the disciples is fortified by the presence of Jesus. Now when we get into Acts, uh, at about the time there's about 120 followers of Jesus per Acts 1.15, Jesus looks now at this swelling crowd from perhaps 12 now to, or 11, now to 120, and he says this in Acts 1. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God is with the people of God at the command and will and work of Jesus. Jesus promises the presence of God's Spirit throughout the Gospels, in particular in John 14, when he says this, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Notice when Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, it was right after he said, who would he give? His spirit. See, God himself is our peace. It is not a commodity he extends to us. He himself, his presence is our peace. And the persistent presence of Jesus shouldn't be as surprising as something that he came up with at the end of his ministry. It's from the very beginning. Hear this from Matthew chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said. By the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. John is keen on this characteristic of Jesus as well when he said in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word made flesh, yes, but he is also the one who dwelt among us. The presence of Jesus is not just a gift to Paul in Corinth. It has been his age-old promise to be with his people forever. See, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord, we are at rest. In the presence of the Lord, there is abiding love. In the presence of the Lord, there is assurance of our identity. In the presence of the Lord, fear is replaced with love and comfort. In the presence of the Lord, there is deliverance and there is safety in the palm of his hand. In response, therefore, to God's character that Jesus has reaffirmed and reassured Paul with, Paul settles in. Don't you love this? Paul's response to Jesus' words in the middle of reviling and oppression is to remain in Corinth 18 months. Now think about that. Paul is transient. Paul he makes tents everywhere he goes, right? It's incredibly apt, right? He's not building houses. He's building tents. 
He's moving all over the place. He's going to different cities. He's going from one place to another. He moves in and out. He preaches the gospel. He plants churches. He raises up elders. He even sends Silas and Timothy to stay there for a little bit longer to reassure stability. But then he moves on. He's gone. He goes to the next city. And yet in the reminder of God's fresh character and his presence with him, he stays He stays, he pauses, he settles in, he settles down, he presses pause, he locks in for 18 months. The presence of God changes us, transforms us, renews us, makes us glad in him. It brings us joy and peace and protection. In his presence, we become more more faithful, more joyful, more courageous because we are safe in Christ. For many of us, God's presence and protection, I think even right now, is being misapplied. So help me to guide, let me, let me help us to guide our thinking in this. Because sometimes we think, great, you know, God's presence, there is protection, so as long as I keep coming to church, I'm in his word, he will make sure that I am successful by my own definition of success that my kids will never get sick, they'll go to good schools, I will have the right number of children that I desire, my work will continue to ascend and escalate, my financial resources will continue to be fruitful, I will have the right relationship at the right time, in the right place, in the right wedding, in the right hashtag, everything will just get lined up in the presence of the Lord. Remember, the presence of the Lord changes you. So if you come into the presence of the Lord expecting him to bless already who you are by your own merit, you are up for a rude awakening. This is where the qualities and characteristics of God become commodities for us to consume because he is no longer a God, the Lord to whom we submit. God's presence will never lead you to a place where you are more sure of yourself. He will always lead you to a place where you are more desperately aware of your need for him. See, if on the other side of a message or the other side of reading God's word, you go, I'm really not that bad. You haven't heard the gospel. If on the other side of the message, you go, I really am pretty awesome. And therefore, like I can tomorrow, go and do it on my own accord. You have not heard the gospel. You have not been in the presence of Jesus. You have been in the space of your own brain. Thanks be to God. He saves us even from ourselves. See, protection in particular, the kind of protection that I believe that the Lord is speaking of when we look at what's going on with Paul is it's a protection from victimization and it's a protection in the middle of mission. See, many of us know very little about this kind of protection of God because we've never been sinned against in such an egregious way. We've never been persecuted and many of us, real talk, are not on mission. And therefore, we don't know about this kind of protection We have this sort of like oat oat milk latte protection. I'm so glad they've got milk alternatives now because now I can enjoy my drink the way I need to. Like God has protected me from such things. See, when we have a small view of what our mission and purpose in life is, we have a small view of the protection and presence of God. See, amidst victimization, we need reassurance. We need to reassure our brothers and sisters of the presence of God in their lives. Because as Paul, his life was being threatened, religious persecution and evil. Jesus speaks courage and hope to him through his presence. He says, I'm with you in that. And I've sat, as I've sat and learned from victims or those who have survived egregious sins, 
One of the things that begins to take place in the middle of that story, as many of you have helped me to see what I could not see on my own, is isolation and shame. That you feel completely alone even when you are in public, even when you are gathered with the church, and sometimes even especially when you are with the church. See, when we're sinned against, we have a way of feeling unclean, a way of believing that fault washes over us. We're tempted to believe either the offense was brought on by us or somehow we deserved it. But as I've learned from these experiences and conversations, it has been the presence of God alone which brings transformation and healing because only His presence dispels isolation at the deepest level. Only his presence washes away shame, the feeling of guilt that we carry because of the sin of another. See, I think sometimes we, even in our own hearts and minds when we've been sinned against, try to protect ourselves by downplaying the sin and shame. Wasn't that big of a deal. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to deal with it on my own. And in fact, many things that the church has done has told you to deal with that on your own, of which we need to ask your deep and remorseful forgiveness. But by diminishing the worth of a human being, by not seeing their source and value and worth of God, we have actually not only exacerbated the original offense, but perhaps exceeded it by our failure to respond appropriately with the presence of God. On mission as well. See, Jesus, in Jesus we remember our need for the Lord's protection and presence. See, when we keep sharing our faith in Jesus, when we continue to live in the light as he is in light, we continue to obey him and live contradictory to the, the movement of a particular culture, you begin to stand out, you begin to be isolated in that, and you go, that's that crazy person. That's that crazy person. That's that person who claims to follow a resurrected rabbi. That's that person who claims Jesus is the only way. Therefore, because that seems really hard, we begin to, and maybe in work when we're faced with these sorts of things, we start praying for a professional Protestant to come into it. Like, I just need a bivocational person to become a consultant so that they can come into this space with a Master's of Divinity degree, they can save all of these people, and that the Lord would be honored in this place. Friend, if he wanted me or any other professional Protestant to be in your workplace, he's really good at putting them there. But instead, he's placed you. Instead, he has given you that job. He's given you that address. He's given you those relationships. And not just so that they would benefit you, but so that you might speak the truth of the gospel to them. So in the middle of that, I realize it reveals all kinds of inadequacies, right? We doubt the accuracy of our words. We doubt our ability to speak to somebody. We doubt our even understanding of a particular worldview. And we worry we're going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. We're going to lose our job. And all of a sudden, it's not going to work out for us, right? We go to some crazy places when we're trying to avoid obedience. We go to weird places. And so this is what we begin to do. This is what I begin to do. I know when I get a bit terrified. Many of us then start just opting out of mission entirely and saying, well, this is just for some people. Remember, remember Paul, he's like that, like that crazy apostle who can do all things. So in our, in our flesh, we crave for a mission field that fits our ability, that, that is more, more uh, apt with our understanding. We're convinced ourselves that mission is only for some followers of Jesus. And in doing so, we actually admit that our purposes supersede the presence and protection of God. In each of these, both in victimization and in mission, there is a temptation. And the core of that, I think, is self-assurance. To be self-assured. To be reassured in self. 
See, when we have been sinned against, yes, we need to know that we are an image bearer, that a violation of inconceivable evil has come to us not because of us, but because of the sin of another, and that as a son and daughter of the Most High God, we have an inestimable worth as his child. However, all of that worth is not the bottom of the barrel. All of that worth is founded on the principle, the worth, the power, the beauty and brilliance of God himself. And so even in victimization, we must be careful to not stop at the self-worth of an individual, but go to the place and source of that self-worth, their creator, their maker, God himself, that his presence might renew them. And too often as Christians, we look for a purpose and a mission that matches our perceived abilities and desires. And so instead of saying, God, if you are with me, I'll go anywhere, uh, I'll befriend anyone, and I'll do anything you tell me. Here's what goes on the voice in my head. I wonder if it's yours. God, this is where I'm going to go. These are the people I'm comfortable talking with. Here's what I'm willing to do. Now let's go save some souls today. See, we fail to believe that it's the presence and protection of God that will lead to the fruit of the kingdom. We believe that it will be our own ability. We want to protect ourselves, don't we? And in this is the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus did not protect himself. What we see on the cross is a willing victim, threatened and murdered by Roman centurions, Those from whom the first Christians now are running, Jesus was tried and unjustly convicted and crucified. Jesus was on a mission. He came into the world to save the world by inaugurating his kingdom, chiefly displayed by his power and victory over Satan, sin, death, and evil on the cross, in the grave, in the resurrection, and in the ascension. And yet Jesus was isolated. Not only was he a victim, not only was he on mission, but he allowed himself to be momentarily removed from the protective presence of his father. The son was forsaken by the father. Jesus in that moment did not merely carry the weight of the world's sins, he became sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 tells us, and sin always creates separation from the Father. You see, everything that Jesus promises Paul in Acts 18 in Corinth, he could give Paul because Jesus went without those assurances on the cross. In fact, the way in which Jesus was afforded the authority to graciously bestow his power and protective presence was because of the cross itself. Jesus was willingly removed from the Father's presence so that by faith, you and I would never have to know life without God. This invitation and possibility of God's presence is made possible through the cross and ascension. And so the cross, a place of victimization, is now a place of victory because it's on the cross that Jesus overcame all evil that could befall us. In the kingdom, the cross is power and life, not weakness and death. It's important to understand that the inauguration of the kingdom is now that work of liberation, of freedom, of restoration, that, the, that evil has been set on notice, that darkness cannot have a rebuttal to light, that Jesus' kingdom is already and one day it will be fully realized. And our joyful mission is to see that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God take hold of this world. 
Jesus has defeated evil itself. Therefore, our mission is to speak of this divine victory and subsequent protection that the world who is wrapped up in evil may know only in Jesus. See, Jesus protects us through his presence. So may we be a people who live in that presence. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your presence there is fullness of joy. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my friends. Heavenly Father, would you strengthen us in your presence? Not as some sort of emotive interaction with you, but as a true understanding of where we reside because of the work of Jesus. We live within your presence because you are a God who's welcomed us into your presence by grace. And so, Father, I pray for my friends, my brothers, my sisters who have experienced such grievous and egregious sin. Would your presence reassure them of your great love, your great peace, and the great worth that they have in Christ? I pray for those like myself who often avoid mission because it seems too hard. And therefore, just ask you for a role to play that seems fitting and comfortable to our own abilities. Father, forgive us in that moment we're believing that it's our strength that is more sufficient than yours. And so we thank you that in Jesus, our shame is washed away. We thank you that in Jesus, in our weakness, we are made strong. We thank you that in Jesus, there is hope over evil and that one day all shall be well. And all who know and love Jesus will be in his very presence eternally and completely. So we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name, amen.